Hello, you are listening to the Higher Intelligence Podcast presented by My Working Soul. Today we're talking about passive income, also known as mailbox money, the idea of getting money passively with little or no work. Growing up as a child of immigrants, the concept of generational wealth was personally foreign to me. Of course, I was curious about how much things cost, what kind of money certain people made, and what it took to have nice things and live in nice places. Exposed to different ideas of wealth and how to create it, I received a well-rounded education informed by multiple cultural perspectives. Values of hard work and creativity were instilled in me by my parents, and I learned how to earn what I worked for. Still, in spite of all this, practical financial literacy was not necessarily discussed, at least not in real terms throughout my upbringing, not at school, home, or in popular culture. Fortunately, I was personally blessed to encounter many wonderful mentors that supported my growth, teaching me about the business of how money is made. However, I understand and recognize that not everyone has the advantage of mentors, And in this spirit, we're dedicating this episode of the Higher Intelligence Podcast to the person that is looking to understand what it really means to be truly wealthy. In the 21st century, with access to so much information about money, how to get more of it, how to finesse it, or what to do about it, it's easy to forget that the value of money isn't about accumulating needless wealth. It's about who you want to leave everything to. It's an age-old question. Is money really everything? My answer for today is that money doesn't have to be everything, and it won't guarantee happiness. But it can buy you choices and increased options in life. It's worthwhile to develop a disciplined approach to finance and investments so that you can sustain wealth over time, acquire cash-flowing assets, and work towards guaranteeing freedom and more flexibility in the decisions you make about how you live your life, how you spend your money, and who you spend it with. Mailbox money. Yeah. What is that going to cost me, man? But you, it's it's by choice. Right, right. You want the proud to pay us a rat. Explain mailbox money, Nip. Mailbox money is, you know, when you own an asset and you get the, you know, the, the income that the asset generates, we call it mailbox yeah, money. Man. You own real yeah, estate, you get mailbox just go money. To the, just go there and it's, yeah. it's one waiting on you. Period. Like, oh, okay, yeah. hello. And if you, you own publishing, you write your own records, and you ain't sold your publishing, that's mailbox money. You get mm-hmm. your, you own your masters when them albums sell on iTunes, that's mailbox money. Yeah, man. And that's the, that's the business model of every major corporation that give advances. Yeah, yeah. They give advances to, 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 to participate in the, the income of your asset. Right. The mailbox money. Stuart Heath is the CEO of Harvard Grace Capital, creating passive income through the best real estate investments you've never heard of. 
Busy professionals rely on Harvard Grace Capital to earn 15 to 20% returns by investing in commercial real estate assets strategically located in the 840-565 corridor. It's about reaping the benefits of real estate without any of the headaches, increasing freedom, and building a lasting legacy for generations to come. Eliminate worrying every time the stock market has a downward spiral, diversify your portfolio, and understand why the 840-565 corridor is the hidden gem of real estate. If you're interested in building generational wealth, Stewart's unique expertise in finding top real estate deals and forging partnerships is a cornerstone of what it means to cultivate responsible financial literacy. Our conversation opens with the topic of passive income, exploring the human implications of every fiscal decision and the importance of considering the type of life you want to live. Together, we discuss the consequences of a diversified portfolio and, more broadly, the significance of working towards a purpose in life, finding a way to live your dream while financially enabling your future. I'm your host, Karine Ischio, and today I am so delighted to introduce our guest, Stuart Heath, CEO of Harvard Grace Capital. Stuart, it's so nice to have you here. How are you? I'm doing great today. Thank you so much for having me. We are so excited to learn more about Harvard Grace Capital. And also, I'm personally looking forward to learning more about passive income and how that applies to a variety of different workers today. I'm a little self-interested. I want to hear about financial advice for my generation, in particular millennials, as well as for people that are thinking about investing but don't really know where to begin. Let's just jump right into it. So, Stuart, can you start by telling me just a little bit more about Harvard Grace Capital, how it came to be? And honestly, I'm, I'm really intrigued by the name. And I'd love to hear how you came up with the name as well. Sure. I get a lot of questions about the name. Both names, Harvard and Grace, have double meaning. As a serious business student, I got a subscription to the Wall Street Journal early in my college career. And I would read the front page every day. And back then, there was a company called W.R. Grace. And what W.R. Grace was, the good old-fashioned conglomerate, really, America became known for. And they just owned things. They were in almost every kind of business that you can imagine. So my recollection is every day you'd pick up the paper and there might be two or three or four articles about W.R. Grace or some division that they own. So I just kind of love that. The, the, the name said nothing about what they did. And so I took Harvard, which is my dad's middle name. It also happens to be the name of a distinguished Northeastern school, I've heard. So I put that together with grace and trying to play off on the WR grace and grace is also personally meaningful to me, the, the grace of, of my Lord who's given me many second chances. So I'm, I'm grateful for that. So grace has a double meaning for me as well. That is absolutely beautiful. And as someone who also is a champion of faith and also thinking about that beautiful serendipity of what words can mean to us. That is just absolutely beautiful. And I admit, when you mentioned the paper newspapers, I just like totally had an image in mind of like the page boy cap. Love it. That's absolutely beautiful. And in our first conversation, when we met via Zoom conference, I was really struck by the comprehensive explanation you gave me about passive income. 
And it's something that I've heard about before, especially as an entrepreneur and small business owner, and also just overall someone who's interested in accelerating wealth in a real sense. So I had heard of the term, but I asked you kindly to explain it to me as though I were a five-year-old. And that was a little bit of a challenge. So we made it a very sophisticated five-year-old with a 10-year-old <laughs> knowledge. If you could repeat that for our listeners, Stuart, what is passive income in the simplest terms possible? Passive income is income that you receive and you don't have to do anything to receive it. It's sometimes called mailbox money or back when we actually used to get physical mail. Now it's just sort of monthly ACH money, if you would. And once you've made your investment, you're relying on the investment manager to send you your check every month, every quarter, whatever you know, the, the schedule allows. That's what passive income is. I would definitely love to learn more because there's so much yeah. more than what we can share in a, a brief conversation. Yeah. But I think for that person who doesn't really know anything about this world. It's intriguing because in millennial terms, all of us tend to be active on some form of an online platform, whether that's Instagram or LinkedIn, Facebook or YouTube. And I'm sure that a lot of us have heard all about ways to monetize different things, whether that's content or having what they call a side hustle, having a side business on Amazon. And there can be a myriad number of reasons for why someone might choose to do that. But typically, the number one reason that I hear is I want to make more money. I'm not feeling like I am, you know, getting to the financial place that I want to be in life with my nine to five job. And so I want something extra. And what does Harvard Grace Capital offer to that person that's unique compared to starting an Amazon side business or finding a way to monetize content on YouTube? What does Harvard Grace Capital do that's unique compared to that? Well, Harvard Grace Capital brings investors passive income opportunities based in real estate from stabilized properties, meaning they're already making money. They already have all their tenants. You're not developing it. You're not continuing to build it. So, so the property is essentially done. We do focus in a specific geographic area. And real estate is what I like to call the original passive investment, if you would. Rental income has been a staple of wealth building pretty much since the invention of money. You know, since the first caveman charged another caveman uh, two goats to live in that cave next to his for a week. I mean, it's just been there. There's all kinds of different real estate properties these days. There are many opportunities for passive income. There's oil and gas. You buy into a well, and that well may very well throw off income to you, you know, for the next 20, 25 years. These days, most people think of it as dividend stocks, the General Electrics, the Verizons, whatever the big blue chips are that are throwing off dividends. You know, those are passive investments as well. So it's not just real estate these days. We obviously are really high on, on real estate. And as far as being unique, when you invest passively in real estate, you also get a whole bunch of unique tax advantages as well that you won't get with stocks. You can get some similar in oil and gas. These are investments that you make with capital, which is different than a side hustle. A side hustle is called a side hustle because you're out there working it. Mm -hmm. That's not passive. Taking on a second job is not passive. So if you're still in the wealth building stage or you want to make more money, 
passive income not going to be a great benefit to you unless you also have capital to invest. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, it's interesting because that establishes so much of the boundaries around who understands these concepts. And I think it's so important to spread more awareness about what it means when you say that boring is beautiful. Can you tell me what you mean by boring is beautiful? Yeah, I was touching on it when I was describing stabilized properties. We all like to do things that we can go talk about on social media or when we're together with friends. You know, stabilized real estate projects is probably never going to be one of those because it's quite boring. You know, the the greatest news you're going to get is, hey, great, all the tenants paid their rent this month. You know, Mm -hmm. that's what they're supposed to do. But your investments should be boring. If you are taking great risks with your money, and there is a time and a place to take more risk, in most people's investment portfolios, they should be investing in stable, rather boring things, such as income-generating assets, whether that be stocks, oil wells, buildings, things of that nature, that you don't have to personally manage and that you don't have to personally go fix the toilet if the toilet breaks or anything like that. You know, they're just boring, but they're boring all the way to the bank. You're taking less risk, but you're getting a nice steady 10% plus return year on year. And then when you sell out of it, you'll get an additional boost that should generate you a return in the low 20s, you know, 20 to 24% annualized return over the life of that investment. You know, it's interesting, a quick aside and a, a bit of a connection to to my neck of the woods, human resources and hiring. One thing that is a trend in terms of demographics and intergenerational distinctions, of course, not painting with a completely broad brush. Of course, every human being is an individual and unique, but overall, there are some demographic trends in terms of the different motivations and priorities of different generations. And to cite my generation as a card care millennial, there is a trend that a lot of millennials like to find purpose-driven work. And so in the realm of hiring, you'll see a lot of people in my generation really care about the mission, vision, and values of an organization. They'll be interested to know what kind of impact their work has on not just a bottom line, but also for the greater good. And so that's a trend in hiring that I've in particular noticed for millennials. On your end, Stuart, Do you notice any demographic trends? Are millennials really interested in passive income in your experience? Or is there maybe a a dearth of awareness for some generations versus others? And is that straightforward in terms of just not having passive capital? Or is it alluding to something that I'm referencing, which is this desire to maybe not be, quote unquote, boring, (laughs) for better or for worse? What do you think about that? I've made a few observations. I don't consider my observations to equate to sort of statistical analysis, if you would. I think the millennial generation is perhaps a little ahead of the curve on investing than where my own generation was. And maybe that's just because those are the ones that I'm interacting with. So, you know, if I can use the term millennials, they have sort of rejected the idea of driving into work every day, because why would we do that? I have my laptop. They have put off buying homes, probably because they 
saw their parents slaving around the house year in, year out, keeping it up. And I certainly understand the perspective. I'm not saying I'm 100% there of why not rent and let somebody else do all that property management? So they're a little later to home ownership, but not necessarily investing. I will just say they aren't necessarily on board with the idea that buying a home is an investment. And to the rich dad, poor dad author, Robert Kiyosaki, he would agree with them because you know, he defines an asset as something that generates more cash than it uses. Well, your home doesn't do that until the day you sell it. Now, still, that's been a great wealth generator for Americans uh, for the last hundred years. But then again, it's got to be for you. If it's not an investment that you want to do, then don't do it. But I've seen people who may or may not own a car. They might Uber everywhere. They are renting, but they have a half million dollar investment portfolio. So they're just choosing other avenues of investment, which actually is a little bit more flexible than, you know, putting everything you got into your house. Why did a home become the biggest investment most people will ever make anyway? It was because it was leverageable. It's because you could borrow 80, 90% of that and then you're sort of fixed on what you're paying about the bank, and then you got 100% of the growth beyond that. So that's why it became so popular. And, and frankly, that's still true of almost any real estate sector because it is so leverageable. Uh, the interest is deductible. What that means is you borrow money. And when you borrow money, there's risk to that. Uh, but when you borrow money for investment, you're putting your dollars with, say, the bank's dollars. But you get all the increase. Let's just say you put in 10%. The bank puts in 90%. You get all the increase. So you're multiplying your dollars for the gain. Things can go wrong and do go wrong from time to time. Most of the time they don't. So that's what I mean by using the term leverage. And that's true in investment real estate. But that's why home ownership was so popular and has been so so popular. Because it's so easy to, to get into it. You're borrowing that money and you're buying for something that you have to have anyway. You know, you got to have a place to live. Yes, precisely. And that was my personal calculation for becoming what I call a mortgage owner. Until I pay it off, I I don't feel like a homeowner yet. The calculation was I do need a place to stay and to be. And so for me personally, I just chafed at the idea of I saw it as giving away money for free as as someone yep. who would be renting. But that's a nuanced perspective that I appreciate though. And I'm I'm really hanging my hat on that keyword flexible. And I appreciate the agency that that affords to certain individuals that might still be in that decision making phase of their life where they're figuring out where they want to establish roots. Or maybe it wouldn't be wise perhaps to go into an investment like property only to sell it at not a good price a year later because you've changed your mind. So I do appreciate that nuanced perspective because I think when I was looking into buying a home before I did it, I watched so many different things on YouTube. I tried to listen to everyone that I could and and really it just came down to analyzing my lifestyle choices and and knowing that I really wanted that stability and knowing that I love San Diego, California. <laughs> that also offers like a nuanced perspective as well on that 
often cited statistic about how millennials own less property than prior generations, but that's a really good spin on it in terms of there's diversification in one's portfolio and it doesn't necessarily need to include some of those traditional things. But I personally love being in this position of being a mortgage owner because it suffuses my life with different types of activities that I wouldn't normally have as a renter. Being a creative person, I really wanted to be able to think in that direction and not feel like I'm going to uproot in one year and have to start all over again. So really great advice, my friend. And I'd love to ask you, another part of our previous conversation was about people who see investing as quote unquote gambling. How do you combat that idea when it comes to investing generally, but also passive income specifically? Well, tying it back to your own personal journey of whether or not to buy a home, you went through an analysis and you concluded that it made sense. And I think largely because you're going to be in the San Diego area. I think everybody needs to go through an analysis as to what is my investment for. I've got some money that I don't need right now, so I'm going to, quote, invest it. What does that mean? And what do I want to accomplish? You're a business owner. You didn't do this without setting out a plan. And I think most people will come to the conclusion that the purpose for their investing is to grow their wealth ultimately to the point where it's going to throw off income on a regular basis so they don't have to work, which is called independent wealth. To do that requires a disciplined approach, which is not buying Bitcoin. I'm not against Bitcoin. I have some good friends who've made a whole lot of money in Bitcoin. I've never personally done crypto because I don't understand it. And I really haven't taken the... I haven't taken the time to, and you know, maybe someday I will. And I'm not saying that there's not a place in your portfolio for some Bitcoin. You need a diversification to spread out your risk across asset classes and across managers and across industries. By asset class, that would be real estate would be one, stocks would be another, bonds would be another, art, some people consider investments. And they can be. So here I am. I'm the real estate guy. And I'm saying, don't put all your money in real estate. (laughs) And and, And even all the money that you put in real estate, don't put it all with one manager. You know, I'm just I'm just one guy. You know, if you choose to manage your own property or something that, you know, sure, you can invest in yourself that way. But again, look at your portfolio as a pie. Now, I believe that the foundation of your investment portfolio should all be targeted at cash-flowing assets, dividend-paying stocks, bonds that, that pay off interest, real estate, oil and gas, things of that nature. And you build a core. That's your boring core. Go back to that word. Depending on how big the pie is, and, and everybody's pie is a little different, up to about a million dollars, that pretty much ought to be about everything that you're investing in, boring stuff. Now, when you get to the point where you've got excess investment money and you can take more and more risk, and it's all very exciting, and we all like to make it on CNBC one day. I'm just saying, build your foundation first. Build your core with cash-flowing assets. Why cash-flowing assets? Because they tend to be more stable. It's almost 
circular reasoning. They throw off cash because they're more stable. And if you look at assets that are throwing off cash, uh, they tend to be more stable because a mature asset tends to stay mature. Stuart, you mentioned something really intriguing, and I'd love to play a little game with you called Hip Hop Finance. And what the game is, is I'm personally a hip hop fan, but one of the interesting things, and I'll kind of say my generation just because there are a lot of hip hop lyrics that purport to give financial advice. I'd love to just try your ear on a couple of them and see what you think. And you can give me a thumbs up if it's sound financial advice or a thumbs down. Starting from the top here, and we alluded to this already in terms of creative investments with art, but from the eponymous Jay-Z, it's a song called Story of OJ. And the lyric, I'm going to censor myself a little bit, but the lyric says, I bought some artwork for $1 million. Two years later, that was worth $2 million. Few years later, worth $8 million. Can't wait to give this to my children. Is that sound financial advice to let creative investments appreciate value? Or how do you feel about that, Stuart? Well, I think technically creative assets, uh, that's pretty much the only way that they can be invested is to uh, buy and hold. That strategy is called buy and hold. And if you've got capital in your portfolio to allocate to creative assets, then I think it's great. There's no doubt Jay-Z is able to allocate that in his portfolio. I'll guarantee you this. Jay-Z has an ample allocation in his portfolio of cash flowing assets. And real estate. He's not just buying art. (laughs) Absolutely. We need to have his boring is beautiful conversation. You get to a point where investing is about uh, who you're going to leave it to. So. Mm, we're alluding to generational wealth again. So do we get we get a thumbs up on that one, Stuart? Yes, yes. Buy and awesome. hold. Yes. Okay, buy and hold. Let's write that down on a flashcard, kids. The next one, we're going to go back a few decades to a classic by Wu-Tang Clan. And this one is CREAM, which stands for Cash Rules Everything Around Me. And I would translate that to money equals freedom. But do we get a thumbs up on that or a thumbs down, Stuart? Yes. Financially speaking, yes. Yes. And I think there's a mentality to money isn't everything. I mean, as we referenced in the Jay-Z lyric earlier, there's a component of family and personal life. And I mean, for me, I know I can't bring everything to heaven personally. So there is this feeling that money isn't everything, but money can guarantee freedom and more decisions. And that's why it's worthwhile to start thinking about it early or, you know, really I'll say it like this too. It's never too late to start thinking about it. So awesome. Wu-Tang, you get the thumbs up from Stuart here. And now we're going to go in a little bit of a different direction. We're going to cite a book. So there's a hip hop artist named Slim Thug, and he wrote a book called How to Survive a Recession. And I'm laughing because I was like, I just found out about this book today. And I thought, I really got to read this book. But a quote from How to Survive a Recession by Slim Thug, he says, if you can't buy it three times over, you can't afford it. Don't drive a Bentley on a Benz income. Interesting analogy there. Because to me, a Ben's income, that's still pretty good. But the point holds, you know, I think my generation used to say you got champagne taste with a beer budget. So if you're out making a purchase and you can't afford to buy it three times, that's actually a pretty good metric, I would say. Yeah. Okay. Um, You know, basically that stops you from overspending. Let's just say you want a $20,000 car 
and you're going to finance that. And that's you know what most people do is they're they're buying a monthly payment and they happen to get a car with it. So if you can afford that payment or three times that payment, then you can do it. But if you can't, you realize what happens after you've done that, then then your window for what you can afford just got reduced until something else frees up, you make more money, you pay something else off, that type of thing. I'll give that a thumbs up. Yeah. Oh, wonderful. Sound financial advice, Slim Thug. You know, before we go on, what I personally love about this this exercise is that there's this traditional idea of hip hop and the ideas that it disseminates through visual mediums. We all are familiar with the tropes of gold chains, expensive cars, very expensive clothing. And I really enjoy picking out the bits of financial advice that are applicable in in real world that will actually put someone on the path to financial success. Because we can't get gold chains without investing in the boring is beautiful framework so we can get that capital and afford to buy ourselves those types of luxuries. So really appreciate this exercise. I I might rephrase, you can't keep the gold chains. I mean, you can always (laughs) buy gold chains with your credit card. Oh, Um, good. I I own no gold chains personally, so (laughs) I'm completely uneducated when it comes to this. So the last two I wanted to go through (laughs) with you, Stuart, they're a little bit more, I'm going to say specific. They get into a little bit more meaty financial terms, at least for me. So there's another song called Dangerous by Busta Rhymes, and he says, floss a little, invest up in a mutual fund. What do you think of that advice? I think mutual funds are great places to start. Now, I think there's over 2,600 mutual funds publicly traded in the market right now. So I would challenge anyone to be a little pickier than that, than just a mutual fund. You can pick an income fund that will throw off income to you if you wish. You can pick a high risk growth fund. When you see the word growth in financial media, that generally means more risk. But that would have been big tech 20 years ago. They they were all risky. Now they're almost blue chip staples. So mutual funds are good options, but be selective. Pick a good fund family like Fidelity or Schwab or any of those guys. And then it all goes back to your investment goals. What are you investing for? Is the category of mutual fund moving closer to that boring is beautiful framework in terms of being one aspect of a portfolio? Got yeah, it. Mutual awesome. funds, uh, yeah, uh, generally I found them to be quite boring. So The last one I wanted to query you about, sir, comes from Kendrick Lamar. So going a little bit more contemporary here, this comes from a record called YOLO. This gets quite <laughs> specific, actually. Invest in your future. Don't dilute your finances. 401k, make sure it's low risk. Then get some real estate, 4.25%. 30-year mortgage. <laughs> Is that a thumbs up? <laughs> I love it. Yeah. So we're ending on a winner here. But for those that don't know the meaning of YOLO, the acronym, it stands for you only live once. So that's solid financial advice for your future. So thank you, Kendrick yeah. Lamar. You should take advantage of everything that you have in your world. If you have a job and that company offers you a 401k and they're going to do a match, If you put your money aside through your 401k and whether that money gains a dime in growth over the next year, but the company matches it, you're a winner. So it's just free money to that point. And it's free money that comes to you by just playing the game. You have to 
discipline enough to divert enough from your pay to be in that. It's a great vehicle. You can invest in passive real estate as well through retirement plans as well. So. Absolutely. And, you know, just a, a quick asterisk on the hiring front and for workers, when companies offer awesome employee resources and benefits like 401k matching funds, it's such a huge piece of employee retention. It can really mean a lot. And it also is, it's investing in company culture that's built on financial stability on an individual level as well on an organizational level. So I love hearing that and way to give us a quick tie back to hiring here. One of the things I wanted to touch on, Stuart, we've had such a good conversation already. When we first met and we had an illuminating conversation about so many things, which I wish we had time to talk about among social security on one hand and different ways to invest in your future, we'll have to schedule another conversation for those topics. But I, I walked away from the conversation with so much empowerment about how to gain generational wealth. And for me, someone who grew up in a trailer park, I didn't necessarily grow well connected with a lot of resources. I felt so empowered. And the first thing that I did was I told five of my friends about this amazing human being, Stuart Heath, that I met. And I explained to them in my five-year-old fashion about what passive income meant. And it was so wonderful to start to watch people's gears turn and just think about the possibility in terms of that idea of being able to work towards your passion in life, whatever that is, that can be enabled by this boring is beautiful framework. It's a beautiful way to get towards that goal or that passion, whatever it is. And knowing that everything requires money, generally speaking, it's a beautiful way to start to think about how you can enable your future. And I told it to a 14-year-old, to a 25-year-old, to a 30-year-old. And it's just really wonderful to see how that can empower someone. And in a world where so many people, unfortunately, tend to see things on social media and they see, I'm going to just you know, out and out call them sexy, those sexy, exciting crypto, Bitcoin, those really exciting buzzwords. And everyone wants to put their money into that, be associated with that. It's a powerful thing indeed to think about the ways that you can utilize your money to work the best for you. This has been Higher Intelligence with My Working Soul. And we just want to thank you again, Stuart, for spending this time with us. We really appreciate you. Thank you so much. It's been really fun. In a hiring process, it's not just about the designer company experience or hiring the candidate that comes directly from a competitor. When assessing candidates in a debrief process, consider a hire's intended growth path and the primary goal of what this new team member will be expected to achieve. Significantly, it's important to empower a variety of methods and mouthpieces to communicate these details during the candidate process. Recognize that humans are multidimensional beings, and we can't assess every single aspect of who a person is, where they are in their lives, and so in hiring conversations, it's important to ask yourself, whether you're the hiring manager, a member of a hiring team, or as an executive leader, what is the investment for the new hire? What do we want to accomplish? Remember, the purpose of investment is growth. It's worth going beyond surface level to truly unearth what motivates each candidate, identifying the growth that will propel them to make a difference for themselves and for the business. 
In simple terms, it's about recognizing purpose and enabling that purpose to drive your team to harmonize success, where solving problems is energizing and innovation is encouraged to flourish, reaping the dividends of passive income when you hire well, thoughtfully, and with higher intelligence. From an organizational perspective, we know that there is no quick way to generate organizational wealth. To nourish an investment in a human being is risky on many fronts, and there are perspectives, particularly in certain cultures, that emphasize problem-solving through a replacement strategy, choosing to backfill departing employees instead of exploring the purpose of why valued team members are leaving the organization. To truly understand deep-seated retention questions, there are no shortcuts. When you take the time to understand your employees well, you too can harness the benefits of excellent team members that take growth seriously and feel invested in the company, generating increased ownership and opportunities. These types of commitments are about making an impact and effectively communicating this impact to employees is a key part of the process. There's a lot of responsibility with this. As a business, you have to put your customers' needs first. It's not all about making money, but there's no need to be squeamish about saying that money is important. Companies, to a certain extent, need to be in it for the money, and it's not a suspicious concept. It doesn't degrade the business that the company is in. The biggest lesson is that there has to be a reason for what the company is doing, and the business has to be about something. The point of the business does not need to be inconsistent with making money. Profits must be purposeful, and organizational wealth must be productive. Producing positive impact to make the world a better place in service of a noble cause that an entire team can rally behind. This drives behaviors and decisions that serve the good of the business, the team, customers, and in important ways, the world. An organization achieves this kind of organizational wealth over time. The secret is in planning and hiring strategy and working with wise partners who align with your culture of work, mission, and team vision. For individuals, it may be worthwhile to reflect on your career goals and where your current work sits in relation to that vision. Are you proud of what you do and do you see the impact of your work in a meaningful way? Do you feel connected to your team? Are you making enough money? If you've ever questioned what opportunity is best for you or spent time searching for a role that satisfies your need to solve real problems, there are ways to generate your own passive opportunities, investing in your network in a way that invests in you. Support the people who have held the door open for you and hold the door open for more people in return. Reconsider what the term network connection actually means, including the people you meet in real life. Reflect on your value to a business and to human beings. Communicate the value you see in others to pay it forward. Recognize that building the foundation for a solid career will not be passive. You are called on to invest in your own growth, independent of any organization that employs you. In the midst of what is called the great mismatch, the challenge of analyzing your purpose and mapping your unique value to the needs of today has never been greater. 
That's the essence of true generational wealth, an optimistic perspective on work and recognition that while not all work is glamorous, work that is purposeful will always be valuable. This has been Higher Intelligence, a podcast presented by My Working Soul. See you next time. Learn more about My Working Soul by visiting myworkingsoul.com. And don't miss an episode. Subscribe to the show on YouTube and follow us on LinkedIn, Instagram, and Facebook.